Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 235. We'll continue in the book of 1 Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 16 through 19 and follow with some thoughts about what happens when you breach diplomatic etiquette. Finally, chapter 16 finds the Ark of the Covenant at its destination, Jerusalem, the city of David. Near offerings are offered, the king blesses the nation, and quote, He shared out to every person of Israel, from man to woman, a loaf of bread and a date cake and a raisin cake for each. Oh, yum! David then appoints the Levites to, quote, invoke and to acclaim and to praise Adonai, God of Israel, which they proceed to do for the next 28 verses. So it looks like David's monarchy is finding its footing. The Levites are in charge of the Ark of the Covenant and all its needs in the city of David. But there is also the, quote, tabernacle of Adonai on the high place, which is in Giv'on, where the other sacred rites are performed. This is the bailiwick of Tzadok, the Kohen, and his family. And with that, quote, all the people went, each one to his house, and David turned round to bless his house. And speaking of houses, chapter 17 begins with David observing to the prophet Natan that his house is pretty lavish, but, quote, the Ark of Adonai's covenant is under tent curtains. Natan replies, quote, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. Except that seems to be the wrong reply, because that night God appears to Natan in a dream and sets the matter straight. God tells Natan that David will not be the man to build God's house. God has thus far always lived in tents, thank you very much. And besides, God never told any of the tribal chiefs to build God a house. All right, cowboy, slow down. This is not a criticism per se, but feeling that it might be taken as such, God pivots and tells Natan to tell David not to take this the wrong way. David is still God's favorite king and will have an heir, and he, quote, shall build me a house and I will make his throne unshaken forever. Majesty, what a nice surprise. When Natan apprises the king of what God told him, David replies with a rather lengthy thank you. Quote, Adonai, you are God, and you have spoken to this bounty to your servant. And now have the goodness to bless the house of your servant to be before you forever. For you, Adonai, have bestowed blessing and are blessed forever. Over the next three chapters, chapter 18, 19, and 20, we'll be reading of David's exploits and conquests. David strikes down the Philistines. He lays Moab low. He defeats the Arameans, destroying Hadadezer's renowned cavalry. He also bests the Edomites, making them his vassals. Quote, And David was king over all Israel, and it was David's practice to mete out true justice to all his people. Chapter 19 begins with the death of the Ammonite king Nachash and the coronation of his son Hanun. David, mindful of the transition of power, sends emissaries to the royal court to offer condolences and pay respects. Hanun's commanders interpret this diplomatic move differently. Quote, Do you imagine David is honoring your father and sending you consolers? Is it not in order to search out and to overthrow and to spy upon the land that his servants have come to you? Hanun orders the emissaries to be seized, their beards shorn, 
and their royal garments cut down to the crotch. In other words... Embarrassment, that's what it was. When David hears of this diplomatic outrage, he tells the men to stay in Jericho until their beards grow back. Meanwhile, Hanun prepares for war. The first skirmish between David's forces and the Ammonites ends in a bit of a draw, but the second engagement is more decisive. The reserves are brought in, and this time David himself commands the forces, and they thoroughly rout the enemy. Quote, and Hadadezer's servants saw that they had been routed by Israel, and they made peace with David and became his vassals, and the Arameans no longer desired to rescue the Ammonites. Last episode focused on decorum, specifically King David's, as he led the procession of the Ark to the city of David. This episode has a similar focus, except outward. What I mean is, instead of looking at how one's own demeanor impacts one's stature, I want to look at how my behavior impacts the stature of others. In other words, I'm looking at diplomatic etiquette, and I want to define some terms first because I almost slipped and used decorum and etiquette interchangeably, and and to many, these terms do seem to mean the same thing. Decorum is all about behaving in good taste and propriety, but etiquette is part of a code of polite behavior among the members of a particular group. So while decorum generally applies to all of us, some codes of etiquette might not matter to me. For example, unless I take up coal mining, how I'm supposed to stand in the elevator as it descends into the mine shaft might be of little consequence to me today and right now. Generally, Diplomatic behavior is established by the terms of the 1961 Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, but really it goes back further than that. But for modern sense, we can look at this 1961 document. For example, Article 9, Section 1 states that, quote, the receiving state may at any time and without having to explain its decision notify the sending state that the head of the mission of, or any member of the diplomatic staff of the mission is persona non grata or that any other member of the staff of the mission is not acceptable. In any such case, the sending state shall, as appropriate, either recall the person concerned or terminate his functions with the mission. A person may be declared non grata or not acceptable before arriving in the territory of the receiving state. Article 22, Section 1 states that, quote, the premises of the mission shall be inviolable. The agents of the receiving state may not enter them except with the consent of the head of the mission. There's also discussion about the inviolability of official correspondence and the diplomatic bag and how the diplomat themselves is, quote, inviolable. He shall not be liable to any form of arrest or detention. The receiving state shall treat him with due respect and shall take all appropriate steps to prevent any attack on his person, freedom or dignity. But here's where it gets confusing. Whereas etiquette is group specific. And if you're in that group, the code is clear. We know that various nations and cultures have very different views about what constitutes good taste and propriety. So that's why in diplomatic circles, the general rule follows the council of St. Ambrose, fourth century bishop of Milan, quote, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So don't walk 
when it says don't walk, and don't park your car where it says no parking. But once you set foot inside your foreign mission, you're home free. You can do what you like. But what happens when you do walk when it says don't walk, or sit when you're supposed to stand? Consider that President George H.W. Bush vomited into the lap of Japanese Prime Minister Kichi Miyazawa in a 1992 state visit, or how in November of 2000, the German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder accidentally extinguished Israel's memorial flame for the six million Jews killed in the Shoah. He was participating in a ceremony at Yad Vashem, and he turned the handle that was supposed to make the flame rise, and it went out instead. Prime Minister Ehud Barak stepped up to try to help, but he was unsuccessful. Eventually, a technician got the flame started again. Or how Michelle Obama, the former first lady, put her arm on the Queen of England's shoulder in 2009. Touching the British monarch is strictly forbidden, unless she offers her hand. Or how at the 2011 G20 summit, French and U.S. presidents Nicolas Sarkozy and Barack Obama insulted Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in what they thought was a private conversation. Some members of the press heard Sarkozy say, I cannot bear him. He's a liar. Obama replied, you're fed up with him, but I have to deal with him more than you, often than you do. Fortunately, none of these slights and oversights led to anything more than a cycle or two on the news and some tittering amongst the chattering classes. What is the hot gossip? Tell me everything. But when the stakes are much higher, governments actually go to great lengths to make sure that slights and oversights never happen. For example, in the run-up to the historic 1972 visit of U.S. President Richard Nixon to China, many staffers returned with rashes on their asses. Folks in the diplomatic corps were worried that the president might get similarly afflicted and might find himself mindlessly scratching during meetings with Chairman Mao. You know what, guys? This is not a good look for me! A Navy physician finally figured out that the lacquer on some Chinese toilet seats was the source of the irritation, so Nixon was told just to lay down some toilet paper before having a seat. Good job, man. Good work. However, if any faux pas might feed into a bigger narrative, it could cause big problems. So, for example, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt hosted King Saud of Saudi Arabia on an American warship in 1945, the chain-smoking president refrained from lighting up in front of the anti-smoking king. The Americans wanted to lock down Saudi oil, and this meeting had to go off without incident. So Roosevelt, as we know, was confined to a wheelchair. So when he had to move up and down in the ship, he would use an elevator and he would push the emergency stop button to give himself enough time to smoke two cigarettes between meetings. During the 1950s and early 1960s, diplomats from newly independent African nations were often subject to racist mistreatment as they traveled through segregated Maryland on their way from the UN to the White House. And whenever a diplomat was ejected from a whites-only hotel or restaurant, newspaper writers in, in, in their home country would call out America for being a racist country. You know, perhaps African countries might be better off in the Soviet camp. And this got the attention of diplomats in the State Department who established an agency just to deal with discrimination against black diplomats in the hope of keeping key African countries in the Western Bloc. Some have argued that this 
anti-segregation stance in the State Department laid the groundwork for the U.S. government getting behind the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I don't know. It could be true. But in our case, what King Hanun of the Ammonites did was more serious than touching the queen or vomiting in the lap of the Japanese prime minister. Consider this moment portrayed in 300, directed by Zack Snyder and based on the Frank Miller comic series about the Battle of Thermopylae in the Persian Wars. The Persian emperor Xerxes has dispatched emissaries to Leonidas, king of Sparta, to demand earth and water as a token of submission. Here's what happens next. Madman. You're a madman. Earth and water. Well, you'll find plenty of both down there. No man. Persian or Greek, no man threatens a messenger. You bring the crowns and heads of conquered kings to my city steps. You insult my queen. You threaten my people with slavery and death. Oh, I've chosen my words carefully, Persian. Perhaps you should have done the same. This is blasphemy. This is madness. So it's not beyond understanding for King David to react in a similar way when he hears word that King Hanun has seized his emissaries, shaved their beards, and shredded their clothes. Especially when his emissaries went not to demand earth and water or any form of submission, but to express the king's condolences over the death of Hanun's father. Over the line? You, you, you're, you're so far past the line that you can't even see the line. The line is a dot to you. Yes. David first sought to ease the shame of the emissaries, sending them to Jericho for some needed R&R, but then his attention returns to Hanun, who in his mind... He crossed the line, and he didn't even blink. And as the text tells us, quote, the Ammonites saw that they had become repugnant to David. They knew what was coming next, and David did not disappoint. Such an outrageous act would not go without a response. And even though the initial foray was not a success, David did not give up. He mustered, quote, all Israel and crossed the Jordan and came up to them and drew up his lines against them. Imagine that, mobilizing a whole nation to war because of some emissaries being shaved and their clothes being shredded. Except nothing could stop David from avenging the outrage perpetrated against those men because he could not remain king if he acted otherwise. The message was loud and clear, quote, And Hadadezer's servants saw that they had been routed by Israel, and they made peace with David and became his vassals. And the same would be true for any other leader who was affronted in such a manner. If war is politics by other means, then diplomacy is the opening maneuver of politics. And you better come correct. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. 
and it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 236, when we continue in First Chronicles with chapters 20 through 23.